Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, They are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Rene Ramos. In proof, murder at the warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Rene's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird homicide. described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Backpacking was once a celebrated way traveling the world for a fraction of the cost. But crimes against those travelers soon rendered the practice virtually non-existent. On February 19th, 1958, a man was born who would, as far as the courts are concerned, commit a crime against some backpackers that helped to end the popular method of travel. But, according to others, he is a man who has been made a scapegoat by the police who were desperate to solve the deadly case. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Bradley John Murdoch was born on February 19, 1958, in Geraldton, Western Australia, to a mechanic and a hairdresser who had two older boys and were surprised by the arrival of Bradley. Moving to Perth when he was just 12 years old, Bradley had some problems adjusting to the new city life after living in a more rural area throughout his childhood. It was here that he got involved in a biker gang and, by the age of just 15, had dropped out of school to move back to Geraldton, where he began his criminal activity. 
1980, at 21 years old, Bradley was given a suspended sentence after his dangerous driving took a motorcyclist's life. Met his partner, Diane, that same year. Started a trucking business that would play a role in his bankruptcy in 1983. Married Diane in 1984. Had a son and separated from his wife just two years later, with her citing his violence towards her. Working now as a truck driver and a drug smuggler, Bradley would eventually admit in court to smuggling large amounts of marijuana and, in his off time, exhibited white supremacist tendencies and got himself a racist tattoo to go along with it. In November of 1995, he began a 21-month sentence for drunkenly shooting at people celebrating at an Indigenous Australian Rules football grand final match and was released just 15 months later and moved to Derby, where he continued his work running drugs. He was charged with seven counts of abduction and rape in 2003, but was acquitted and, shortly after this close call, was arrested and charged with the murder of Peter Falconio. Peter, born on September 20th, 1972, was the third of four sons born and raised in Hepworth, West Yorkshire. In 1996, he began a relationship with a woman named Joanne Less. They moved in together a year later and relocated to Brighton. Peter attended the local university there, and on November 15th, 2000, the couple embarked on a once-in-a-lifetime trip that would span across Nepal, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Cambodia, and Australia. Though their families were excited for their journey, news of the most recent backpacker murders, the Port Arthur Massacre, and the Childers Palace Backpackers Hostel Fire made them a little apprehensive over the last leg of their journey. But they were adults, and there was very little the families could do other than caution their travels. The couple arrived in Sydney on June 25th, 2001, and began the road trip that would take them through Canberra, Melbourne, Adelaide, Darwin, and Brisbane. On July 14th, 2001, at around 7.30 p.m., Peter and Joanne were traveling along a remote part of the Stewart Highway near Barrow Creek, heading towards Devil's Marbles when they both became aware that a car had been following their orange combi since they left a roadhouse back in Barrow Creek. Sure that by now, the driver should have overtaken them if they were going too slow for his liking. However, the white Toyota four-wheel drive, complete with a green canopy, never made that move, and before long, drove up beside them and gestured for them to pull over. Sure something must be wrong with his car, Peter pulled over to speak with the Toyota's driver, who explained that he had seen sparks shooting out of their van's exhaust. The pair went to the rear of the vehicle to investigate, while Joanne moved into the driver's seat so she could rev the engine when needed. The next thing she heard was a loud bang and saw the helpful stranger come over to the window and brandish a handgun, ordering her to move over as he climbed into the combi. He used a cable tie to tie Joanne's hands, but when he tried to do the same with her feet, she started fighting wildly to stay in control. Eventually, he succeeded and got tape over her mouth. She was then dragged into the Toyota, noticing the driver's dog, but fearing she would be raped if he actually forced her into the car, she seized her next opportunity and fled into the bush while the gunman was distracted moving her boyfriend's body. After searching for her for quite some time, almost finding her three times, the driver, who we now know was Bradley John Murdoch, drove off into the night. 
Finally sure that the coast was clear, Joanne flagged down a road train driver just after 12.30 a.m., and he took her back to Barrow Creek. The police were called at around 1.30 a.m. and started to collect evidence and witness statements at around 4.20 a.m. The search for Peter Falconio, the Toyota, and the gunman commenced at around 7 a.m., where, at the scene, they found a dirt-covered pool of blood and the couple's abandoned combi hidden about a half a mile away. After about eight hours of searching, roadblocks were set up in hopes of capturing the still-unknown gunmen. And after months of searching and with four Aboriginal trackers, nothing but Joanne's footprints were found at or around the scene. No signs of Peter Falconio or of Bradley Murdoch. It was almost as if both disappeared off the face of the planet. While the media went crazy with the story, inconsistencies with Joanne's statements and her general disposition became a point of contention with the police. Their feelings about her actions compared pretty often with the treatment of the Chamberlain parents back when their daughter went missing. With nothing to go on but some unidentified male DNA found on Joanne's shirt, some DNA on the cable ties, and the combi's gear stick, a $250,000 reward was offered along with the CCTV footage taken back in Barrow Creek in hopes that someone would come forward with some information. A few calls came in, a few names taken down, but nothing concrete enough to warrant an arrest. So police worked with the only other piece of information that they had, the description of the Toyota. Pulling the names of every owner of a 1991 to 1999 Toyota Land Cruiser and adding it to the list of about 36 men identified by the callers, police started interviewing a handful of different potential suspects, which included Bradley Murdoch on November 1st, 2001. However, because he did not immediately match Joanne's description of her attacker, no DNA sample was ever collected. However, on March 17, 2002, investigators caught a random break when they arrested one of Bradley's drug-running accomplices, who, when questioned, started to give details about his connections to Peter Falconio's case. Needing some more information, police were able to get a DNA sample from Bradley's brother, which was matched to the DNA found on Joanne's clothing. But before they could do anything about their new findings, Bradley Murdoch himself disappeared. He didn't resurface until August 22, 2002, when he was arrested, charged, and tried on the kidnapping and assault charges by the South Australian police. Shortly after his acquittal for the rape and abduction charges, Bradley Murdoch was rearrested and charged with Peter's murder. The trial began on October 17, 2003, at which time the court, in order to cope with the demands of the large group of media wanting to cover the case, had to renovate the building in Darwin for about $900,000 to house everyone in attendance. Shortly after, Bradley Murdoch pleaded not guilty to all of the charges against him. A man who, when shown photos, was positively identified by Joanne Lees as the man who killed her boyfriend and attempted to kidnap her. During the trial, Joanne took the stand and told the court all about her terrifying ordeal. And Bradley was found to have left Alice Springs at the time and in the direction consistent with him arriving in Barrow Creek at the time of the murder. The CCTV footage was shown and Bradley's own father and business associate identified him as the man seen on the tape. 
And if that wasn't enough to convict this dangerous man, the DNA matching him to the crime scene became the final nail in his coffin. However, Bradley's defense team argued that the DNA match could have been due to accidental blood transfer in the Alice Springs Red Rooster restaurant prior to the offense, or that it was planted there by persons unknown. Bradley said that he and his dog had stopped at the Red Rooster to get some chicken, and Joanne admitted that, at one stage in their journey, she and Peter stopped there to get a meal. Then there was the fact that, though dismissed, some eyewitnesses claimed to have seen Peter Falconio alive and well at a gas station about a week after he was supposedly murdered. With no body to prove otherwise, some people started to believe that Peter may be alive and that Bradley was not a murderer. All of these accounts were followed up on and all proved to be fruitless. Peter's body, though, has never been found despite what is considered one of the most exhaustive police investigations ever seen in Australian history. On December 13, 2005, Bradley Murdoch was found guilty by a unanimous jury and sentenced to life imprisonment with a non-parole period of 28 years. He was also charged and convicted with assault charges for the attack on Joanne Lees. After his sentence began, the local police began looking into the colorful past of Bradley Murdoch in hopes of linking him to any other unsolved cases, like that of 17-year-old Haley Dodd, who was last seen in 1999 north of Perth, and a broom woman who has been missing since 1996. While they did that, Bradley attempted to appeal his life sentence with the Supreme Court on the grounds that the identification made by Joanne was tainted because they believed she had seen a photograph of him being posted all over the internet after his arrest and read an article linking him to the murder. The appeal was dismissed on January 10, 2007. He tried again the following June, but was again refused. He has now exhausted all opportunities of appeal. While in prison, Bradley, who was still asserting his innocence, met with a prison dietitian and said that he could not be served chicken because he was allergic, which at first didn't raise any red flags until you take into consideration that, according to the defense, his DNA was transferred to Joanne's clothing, not from the attempted abduction, but from the restaurant he went to before the murder to get some chicken for he and his dog. While Bradley's guilt seems obvious to some, others believe he was a scapegoat used by police to solve a crime that didn't even happen, as, in their opinion, Peter Falconio is still alive. In fact, author Keith Allen Noble insists Bradley is an innocent man and offers a reward of £25,000 to anyone who can prove that Peter is still alive. In his 2011 book, Find Falconio, he outlines a, quote, show trial in which the jury was lied to and pressure cooked, resulting in a shocking miscarriage of justice. His writings have been described by several journalists as conspiracy theories. In April of 2017, the NT News received an anonymous letter claiming that Bradley had cut Peter's body into pieces and placed them in two large bags, that an associate was asked to dissolve the remains in acid, and dispose of them in the Swan River, but for whatever reason, decided instead to bury the bags just past Geraldton. The letter was forwarded to the police, and they said they are reviewing it for authenticity. 
The last few updates to Bradley Murdoch's case came in 2019, when he was sent to court to give evidence at an inquest into the death of a fellow inmate. And in recent years, when Joanne's stepfather came forward and said that, as the years passed, he now believes that Bradley is not the man responsible for Peter's death and Joanne's attack. He claims that he changed his opinion after watching a 2007 documentary called Murder in the Outback in which Vince Miller, the truck driver who picked up Joanne the night of her assault, claimed to have seen a red car at the roadside. By the car were three men, two holding up the body of a third. According to the documentary, the men didn't want to be interrupted by the trucker when he asked if they needed help, and instead poured the seemingly unconscious man into the back seat and drove away. The driver now believed that the man they were holding up was Peter Falconio. The documentary also showed an interview with the former defense lawyer who said that one of Peter's friends said he was, quote, capable of faking his own death and committing life insurance fraud. Police have since discounted these theories, but their existence does give some reasonable doubt about Bradley Murdoch's guilt. In 2019, Bradley Murdoch was diagnosed with cancer, triggering a last-ditch attempt from police to get a confession and to find Peter's body before Bradley dies offering him a transfer to a prison closer to his family in exchange. He has refused and will not be eligible for parole until 2033, when he is 74 years old. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on February 20th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon, or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.